Hi, and welcome to the Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Levinson, a psychiatrist at McMaster University. And along with geriatrician Dr. Richard Stramko and other healthcare experts, we're looking to help those affected by a dementia diagnosis. This includes patients and caregivers, as well as family and friends. We understand that a diagnosis of dementia can sometimes feel scary and confusing. This podcast, along with the rest of the Care initiative, was created in order to help relieve some of the stress that comes with a diagnosis. This series will cover a broad range of topics relating to dementia and will look to provide answers to many of your questions. Before we get into the discussion, I want to note that this episode was initially recorded on November 7th, 2018, and focuses on understanding and managing responsive behaviors in people with dementia. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Anthony Levinson from McMaster University. This is my colleague, Dr. Richard Stramko, geriatrician. And we are here today at our third live event for the iGeriCare.ca initiative. Today's live event is covering off uh, responsive behaviors, understanding and managing challenging behaviors in people with dementia. So uh, welcome. Dr. Stramko and I were really pleased with the response so far to our live events and to the iGeriCare.ca website. Uh, We've had over 22,000 people come and make use of our online lessons and many, many viewers participating in the live events or watching the archives. Just a reminder, you can watch the, participate in this video, uh, you already know if you're watching it live, through iGeriCare.ca slash events or through our Facebook page. And if you uh, can continue to post questions either through the iGeriCare.ca events uh, chat box or uh, by sending in your comments and questions through Facebook. So without further ado, uh, let's cover a little bit of background. And of course, like many things in medicine, we make up lots of different words and expressions just to confuse people. Uh, Richard, tell us a little bit about the different terms that people may have heard with respect to challenging behaviors in dementia. Sure. I think the most common one that we've heard for about the last you know 10 years or so has been BPSD or behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia. Now, um, it's a very broad term. And so I think, you know, what was originally intended was to say, hey, there are the problems with dementia where people have difficulties with their memory and thinking and visuospatial function and all of those things which are cognitive uh, problems associated with dementia. And then there's this other category, which is a whole bunch of things. And so Uh, The behavioral and psychological symptoms of dementia can include things that we've discussed already. So apathy, anxiety, depression, and then things that are different than that, hallucinations, delusions. And then we get to this other kind of classification of behaviors where people may be agitated or aggressive. Um, They may have uh, hypersexual behaviors. Mm. They may have very repetitive behaviors. And so uh, we'll call those responsive behaviors. And the reason that this term is important and probably a little bit more useful for both clinicians and uh, caregivers and the patients are that the behaviors can happen in response to something. 
So instead of just being something random, oftentimes there are things that take place in the person with dementia's environment that cause them to act that way. So for example, you know, they may get agitated and aggressive, but they're really experiencing pain in their knee or pain from a medical illness, or perhaps they had some sort of infection or something and that has triggered them off. Um, you know, so I think that's a much more helpful term because it specifies not only what's happening with the behavior, but what's causing the behavior. And if you understand what's causing the behavior, then you can perhaps modify the routine that that person goes through or modify their environment so that uh, they're less likely to experience that behavior. So I think, um, you know, we're definitely seeing a trend over the last few years that more and more people uh, prefer the term responsive behaviors. Uh, Sometimes people talk about that being more uh, person-centric, that you are trying to understand why might the person be responding in this way? Is their behavior related to um, something in the environment or a person or a trigger that they might be responding to? But uh, some of the other uh, terms that are maybe more medical or clinical that uh, you may hear are uh, behavioral or psychological symptoms of dementia. The other one that sometimes people use is neuropsychiatric symptoms, right. uh, neuro being brain and psychiatric mind symptoms. So um, you've mentioned a few of the responsive behaviors. Uh, what are some of the more challenging behaviors that fall in that category that caregivers you know, talk to you about? Sure. Um, a big one is agitation or emotional lability. And so all of us experience that day to day. You know, you may be um, exposed to something that causes you to get angry or a little bit frustrated. Now, when somebody has a dementia, they may lose the breaking mechanism in their brain to kind of keep those emotions under control. And they may become more emotionally responsive with a really small stimulus. So you might have been mildly aggravated before you had dementia, but after you have uh, dementia, you might actually get quite upset and start yelling over something that's simple. It's like uh, the, the problem with the filter. Exactly. Yeah. And oftentimes we'll find that happening when, uh, let's say, a caregiver is suggesting that the patient is having a problem or the person with dementia rather is having a problem with their day-to-day activities or pointing out that they might not be as uh, um, as sharp as they used to in certain mm-hmm. areas, the person with dementia might get very defensive and agitated and upset surrounding that. And, um, two of the other types of uh, symptoms that uh, I often get called upon to see are um, hallucinations and delusions. Um, maybe say a little bit about what kinds of things people might notice with respect to hallucinations or delusions. Sure. And, I, you know, I'm not sure I would qualify these per se as the responsive behaviors mm-hmm. because um, they're, the, the hallucinations and delusions aren't generally a result of what's happening in the environment. They're more a result of the damage that uh, is happening in the brain. So hallucinations um, are perceptual abnormalities. So people can see something that's not there that other people do not see or hear things. Occasionally they can feel things or smell things. But Mm -hmm. most commonly what we uh, will see in people that have dementia are are visual hallucinations. 
And le slightly less commonly would be the, the auditory hallucinations or things which people hear. Um, people can see animals or insects. They may see people. Occasionally they'll describe children. Uh, and those would be more common in advanced stages of most dementias. So Alzheimer's disease, you usually would not get that earlier, but people that have dementia with Lewy bodies can get that early in the course of their dementia. So very distressing to see uh, for some people. Uh, and so some people will, will see them and not be distressed about these, mm -hmm. these things that they're seeing. So I'd say the most common um, hallucinations that people get are visual in nature. Um, there are less well-formed hallucinations that people experience as well. So people that have Parkinson's disease with an associated dementia might just see shadows passing through the periphery of their vision, um, which would be something that's more common. So they can I mean, take on a bunch of different forms. We would call that like a, an illusion where yeah. there's something in the environment, maybe somebody sees a, uh, a broom in the corner and misinterprets it as a, as a person. And, um, you know, again, there may be a behavior that arises because of a hallucination or an illusion. So somebody may get frightened thinking there are snakes on the ground or animals and they may, you know, uh, walk away from a situation. So, mm -hmm. so as you say, the hallucination or the delusion may not be uh, the behavior, but there may be a behavior because of it. So uh, with delusions, some of the more common delusions. So a delusion is really a, a fixed false belief. So somebody thinks that the mafia is out to get them or, you know, and that's why I say it's often uh, what we call paranoid delusions, uh, where somebody feels like they're being uh, targeted, there may mm. be a safety concern. Uh, they may be convinced that people are stealing from them or hiding things. Mm -hmm. There may be a memory problem, they've forgotten it, and they just assume that it's been stolen. Uh, so sometimes I think delusions may be likely to lead to some type of uh, mm -hmm. responsive behavior where the person is, uh, you know, worried or concerned for their safety and may lash out. So, yeah, um, I think the most common ones that uh, we, we see in uh, clinics are those of harm. Uh, so exactly as you're saying, someone's trying to hurt you or harm you, um, potentially infidelity where they're really worried or concerned that their partner might be unfaithful to them, and then theft. So being concerned that somebody's trying to steal something mm -hmm. uh, from them. And it can happen that hallucinations and delusions overlap. And so yes. people will see something and be make concerned. Up, make up a story that exactly. fits the uh, hallucination. Yeah. So they're yeah. seeing somebody in the room and that person is out to get them or that person is trying to steal something from them. So there can be overlap between the two. I guess one of the, one of the important things that we uh, also emphasize, if, if somebody develops hallucinations very quickly, uh, mm -hmm. like within a day or two, um, it could be an important sign of uh, delirium or confusion caused by a medical illness. And mm -hmm. we do see that quite quickly. So again, um, you know, if it comes on slowly and is more typical and it's not the first time, then it may be part and parcel of the dementia. But if it's very uncharacteristic mm -hmm. and somebody is reporting a, a new onset of hallucinations, it mm -hmm. could be the marker of uh, a medical illness, like a, a urinary tract infection or a pneumonia kind of thing. I think that's a great point. Anytime 
in dementia, things start moving fast. Mm. You have to be really concerned and always consider, uh, as as Dr. Levinson is is saying, some sort of medical illness or something that's not a slow neurodegenerative process. So um, let's just talk in broad terms, very simply, about some of the uh, non-medication or non-drug strategies that people use. But I think it would be good for us to go to questions relatively soon. And I, mm -hmm. I suspect some of these will come up and, and medication or drug strategies and, and mm -hmm. non-drug non strategies will probably come out through some of the questions. But maybe just uh, a few key points about uh, some non-medicine strategies that might be useful. Yeah. Um, I think the, the first thing that we always say is look around and see what's taking place before the behavior happens. So um, if the person let's say, is getting a bath and they're being exposed completely um, and that's when they're getting agitated, then you have to think, well, what's happening mm. throughout the bath period? And you and I wouldn't want to be ex exposed uh, in that experience. So it's not going to change just because you have a dimension. So let's say um, an appropriate intervention is just bathing them using a sponge bath and, and only exposing the parts of the um, body that need to be washed. They've actually done randomized control trials in that and, you know, shocking people that get a, a selective disrobing technique have less of a, a behavior. So mm. just being specific, understanding what's happening before the behavior arises and what's happening in the environment, as well as any of the healthcare providers or caregiver activities when the behaviors are, are happening. Sometimes sometimes people, uh, like caregivers, it can be helpful to keep a bit of a, a diary. Mm -hmm. uh, and you, you may not um, be, you know, sometimes it can be obvious what a trigger is. Oh, every time, you know, that uh, my loved one has a, a bath. But uh, it's not always easy to tell. No. So sometimes keeping a diary of when... Uh, some of the behaviors occur can help you to spot uh, patterns. And as you, I, I think, as you said, paying attention to the person, their needs, the environment, and trying to figure out what might be the trigger. Mm -hmm. so. Sometimes people will become um, upset if they're having a difficult time processing a lot of information mm -hmm. at the same time. and can become really agitated when they're out in public if they're all of a sudden put in a situation where they have to talk to a lot of people. And so that might be a situation where you'd want to minimize exposure to that setting, which makes them uh, upset. So avoiding triggers in that sense is um, very important. Kind of anticipating situations yeah. that might make things worse. Uh, Not yeah. overloading people with your expectations of them. And then to your point about um, keeping a diary of when things are happening, mm. you know, oftentimes um, these behaviors are, are common to occur, you know, between four o'clock and six o'clock in the evening. And people will tell us, and, and that's common, uh, it's called sundowning. And we can talk a little bit more about that later. But if you take a diary and are very uh, diligent about understanding when those things are taking place, then you'll see these patterns emerge and understand that they're actually uh, quite common. I think to trying to avoid triggers, um, it's it's hard being a caregiver. So monitoring your tone and your response to uh, the behaviors can avoid escalation. So if there's 
an abrupt emotional response on the part of the person mm. that has dementia, if you can monitor and regulate your tone and keep a, a neutral body language so you're not getting upset and aggressive, then that can prevent things from escalating further. So much easier said yeah, than done. Oh, yes, no. <laughs> but uh, you're absolutely right. There's, uh, and I, I guess there, there's a whole um, teaching approach called the gentle persuasive approaches. And it's, uh, you know, in part, can yeah. you maintain your cool? Can you not get as frustrated as you might be? And, uh, you know, keep calm and carry on, so to speak. Absolutely. And I think the indirect approach to your point, part of this is instead of becoming angry or frustrated at the person uh, and their behaviors, thinking of something that might distract them from what's mm. upsetting them at the time. So um, listening to some music or getting them a warm cup of tea, you know, can I make you a cup of tea? Would you like a warm glass of milk? Can I get you some cookies? You know, oh, what's on television at this time? And if you know something personal about them, mm -hmm. uh, their personal history may be something they'd be interested in. So if they were a keen historian, oh, you know, what are your thoughts on the Spitfire airplane or, or something like that? And I think that gets into knowing and understanding uh, the person before they had dementia. Getting back to your point about a person-centered approach, the more you understand about their personal narrative and what they've been through, all of that stuff doesn't go away. Um, it, it becomes less apparent the further the mm -hmm. illness goes on, but there's still a lot of those memories and almost reflexive behaviors. So I think that's also helpful. A good way to engage them. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. All right. Well, let's, let's go to, uh, to some questions now. Before we move on to the rest of the Q&A portion of the show, I'd just like to take a few moments to tell everyone a little bit more about the iGerryCare.ca website. Here you can find a number of lessons which cover a range of topics, from the basics of understanding dementia, management options, brain health, and caregiver wellness, to name a few. In addition to these lessons, you'll also have access to our live event video recordings, as well as email-based learning options. We're constantly looking to raise awareness about iGerryCare, develop new educational materials, and maintain this as a free resource for caregivers. If you'd like to help, you can support our program by clicking on the Donate button on the top right portion of our website. 100% of your donation goes to iGerryCare. Now, with that out of the way, let's get back to the show. And uh, we'll take the first question now. My, my dad is in a home uh, on a dementia unit, so I guess in a, in a long-term care type of situation or nursing home. Uh, what can we do when he refuses uh, to let the aides uh, give him a shower? Mm -hmm. and you you kind of talked a little bit about uh, some of the challenges that can occur with mm -hmm. bathing. And, and so any, any sort of strategies that sometimes work in this case? I think um, sometimes there are and sometimes there's not. So sometimes um, you have to provide that person with space and it's less than ideal, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to bathing. But how I would say, you know, how well can your dad express his feelings or concerns at this point? Um, can he describe any specific reasons why he doesn't want mm -hmm. to have a shower? So trying to understand if there are. Yeah. Uh, um, is it that the temperature of the room is too cold? 
Uh, is it that there's not enough lighting? Um, occasionally, could you change the um, the you know between a male or a female caregiver yeah, if to the, make him if the personal support worker or the aide? I, I think yeah. sometimes too there's. Uh, there, people may have their favorite uh, personal support yeah. workers or aides that they connect with, and mm -hmm. uh, so they may have a better relationship and a better chance. And then I think what you suggested before, if if the person is able to communicate the things that are troubling them, uh, great. If not, maybe try something like minimizing the exposure, starting yeah. with a sponge bath, and mm -hmm. um, you know maybe there's good days and bad days, and you can pick a good day uh, with a person they like and try a sponge bath and see see if that uh, method works. But uh, there is not always yeah. an easy answer. No. And in, instead of um, being rigid on expectation, so you know they have to have a bath four times a week, it might be taking your time or taking the time to really give them uh, space to go through a routine slightly slower and maybe it only happens twice a week. You know, it's more of a harm reduction approach um, in that sense. Yeah, there was a there was sort of a fallback or a comeback to to that. That it sounds like one of the things that's an inhibitor is that uh, the the person is worried about soiling themselves. I think yes, during the yeah. the showering and and incontinence can be mm -hmm. uh, upsetting and embarrassing. So mm -hmm. probably trying to do toileting mm -hmm. before. The shower or the bathing uh, might be one uh, approach there, but again, mm -hmm. um, you know, it may be uh, there's may, maybe not an easy answer, but that would be one approach that that might work. And I think um, the personal support workers that are on the ward or the nursing staff that are on the ward, if you come up with some of these ideas, they may be response responsive to the mm -hmm. feedback that you give them, and they they themselves might not be trained in. Uh, managing responsive behaviors and i think that's important to note too there's not one curriculum that the personal support workers yeah. receive they're not all educated in exactly the same way so the more that you're able to learn about these uh, behaviors and instruct them the higher the likelihood of success i think and i think that's generally been uh, considered to be a, a real challenge in terms of the education of uh, medical students, residents, physicians. Mm -hmm. We don't have necessarily a lot of training in geriatrics and dementia. And I think the same goes for uh, many of the people working in, in long-term care or nursing homes. They may not have a lot of uh, training. There's often a lot of staff turnover that, uh, so again, it is uh, one of our rationales for iGeriCare is to mm -hmm. uh, help the caregivers to learn some of these uh, key messages. And back to your point about, um, let's say the gentle persuasive approaches. So that's an online learning system for uh, formal caregivers, nurses, doctors, and personal support workers to learn. So um, if you feel there's a lack of understanding on the part of the formal caregivers, then you could point the, uh, the institution mm. that you're dealing with towards that resource to try and help educate them. So we have another um, question, this one from Alberta. Um, the person saying their mother is on a, uh, in a long-term care or dementia unit. Uh, she packs and unpacks her belongings sometimes uh, several times a day. And sometimes this includes even moving furniture around and moving furniture out of her room. Uh, the person's wondering, how, how can um, I get her to understand 
that uh, she may actually injure herself and and to to not do these behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, I mean that's that's a real challenge, and the the downside certainly is any risk of injury. So you'd really want to minimize whatever she's doing to the point of personal risk. But in terms of unpacking, that might be something that occupies her. Mm -hmm. And if she doesn't feel distressed while she's doing it, it might actually be contributing to making her calm. So uh, if it's the furniture side of things, it's really the risk because it's heavier and moving furniture is, you know, more of a challenge than perhaps it's a question of trying to anchor the furniture and let her unpack the less heavy yeah. items because that might be providing benefit. There are people that we've seen. So for instance, somebody that was a secretary or an administrative assistant coming to assistant coming to the nursing station all the time and appearing agitated and frustrated, but people knew that she was uh, an administrative assistant. So they sat her down at a keyboard and allowed her to type. Mm -hmm. And so she started typing and that took away a lot of her distress or anxiety. Um, and this might be a similar situation. If you if you force her to stop doing all of it, um, it might actually have a bit of a negative outcome. So and yeah, try uh, and identify yeah. if you can identify the, the the positive things about it. Maybe she was somebody who enjoyed traveling and there's packing, yeah. uh, or maybe it is uh, something that you know is she expressing some of her frustration with living there and is wanting to leave. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, again, it's uh, trying to understand what is the behavior a response to are there particular positives about it because mm -hmm. it's a diversion uh, are there ways that you can either uh, distract when there are maybe things that are uh, potentially more dangerous like mm -hmm. moving furniture or come up with creative workarounds uh, like can you bolt the furniture or remove pieces right. uh, that could be problematic and i know that's easy for me to say because i'm not the person that has to clean up everything mm -hmm. that she's unpacked um, but often in these situations, we try and look for any positive outcome associated with it and only really intervene when there's a large amount of risk. And it should be said, too, that um, one of the types of behaviors that can occur in dementia is, uh, I, I think we referred to it in another lesson about perseveration, mm -hmm. sort of repetition doing the same things over again. So it's hard to know whether the, the packing and unpacking mm -hmm. has become a bit of a habit from that standpoint that mm -hmm. rela relates to a repetitive behavior rather than there being particular meaning around the packing itself. Right. So. Um, here's another question about, uh, you referred earlier to sundowning and mm -hmm. that would seem to be a good topic because I think a lot, of, a lot of people use that term. Mm -hmm. uh, does a person sundown at the same time each day? So maybe say a bit more about what sundowning is and why we think it occurs and whether it, uh, it happens like clockwork. Absolutely. Um, the exact time, so it doesn't have to happen at the exact time in terms of uh, 5.30 every day, but between those general hours, um, I'm not sure the physiologic mechanism, whether it's related to fluctuations in the level of cortisol or circadian mm. rhythms, uh, we're not exactly sure, but people tend to have worsening cognitive impairment at that time. So um, they may have worsening memory, their attention decreases, so their ability to stay in conversations, um, their ability to follow commands may get worse. And then some of the other agitation may take place or pacing. So many of the responsive behaviors we kind of cover in the lessons 
um, but repetitive walking around the floor or even the hallucinations mm -hmm. that they experience might get worse at that time. Um, so I wouldn't say it happens at an exact particular, uh, you know, an exact time of day, but it happens within that window generally. And, you know, maybe it's 3.30 for some people and maybe it's 7.30 for other people, but closer to the end of the day is when people will experience that sundowning effect. Sometimes and, when the people's um, sleep cycles and yeah. day-night cycles may be off in dementias and uh, if they wake up in the middle of the night, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's generally common that they may be disoriented and, mm -hmm. and uh, may not be aware of where they are and, and may have behaviors in response to that. They may be frightened uh, about losing track of where they are. So. And it, it usually doesn't happen in people that have mild cognitive impairment or a milder dementia. Uh, you'll usually see sundowning much more frequently when people have moderate or severe dementia. Yeah. So here's another uh, very good question, a challenging one. What would the psychological understanding be of why a person with dementia uh, would treat their primary caregiver, who's maybe a kind and caring, concerned primary caregiver, why would they treat that person potentially very badly, but maybe react well to other loved ones who either rarely visit or aren't involved in their care that often? So this person's saying they've seen that often with parents with mm -hmm. dementia, and so they're, they're saying it seems like a bit of a common a response that the person with dementia may be more mean to their sort of main care partner mm -hmm. and treat other people, you know, with more respect. I'm not sure, <laughs> okay. right? I, I this would only be a, a guess, but usually um, the the things that you experience are just more exaggerated when you have a dementia. So I don't think it's that infrequent for our immediate family to see us at our worst. And potentially, we might feel more comfortable um, showing sides of ourselves mm -hmm. that are less desirable to our immediate family to, than to people that know us less well or see us less frequently. And I'm wondering if, if that's just an exaggerated response um, to, to the normal life you know, circumstances that we, we see in people that don't have dementia. I'm not sure if you have any Yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer to it. I, I would agree with them that it's not necessarily an uncommon mm -hmm. uh, phenomenon. Uh, in part, it's probably because, you know, the main caregiver is also probably experiencing some good interactions, but uh, they're having that many more interactions and some of them may be uh, more challenging. Um, they're depending on uh, their primary caregiver role and strategies that they're using, they may be one that is, say, setting more limits on the person with dementia or um, often more in confrontational types of situations. Um, I think it does highlight one of the challenges that can occur for care partners is, you know, not everybody has necessarily had a really smooth relationship with their parents growing up. And you may be in a position as a caregiver of having to care for a parent with dementia when you, you know, didn't necessarily have a, a very loving relation with, uh, relationship with them. So that can be a real challenge as a caregiver, which is a stressful situation at the best of times. And you may be feeling resentful as a caregiver, and it may be doubly the case if you didn't have a great relationship with that uh, parent growing up. I think that those are the hardest sets of circumstances that I've mm -hmm. seen for caregivers because 
there's no positive reinforcement for some people yeah. while they're caregiving. So it's definitely a challenge. So we've got a, a longer question here. My mother's in an assisted living facility. Usually when I visit, she's in bed resting and mostly uncommunicative. Uh, she doesn't want me to bring her flowers. She feels she has to take care of them. She no longer wants to phone, uh, wants us to phone her because the ringing of the phone makes her anxious and she has no ability now to actually call out. Is there anything siblings and I can do to encourage engagement with her surroundings? Staff's been diligent in trying to get her involved in activities for the past year and a half, but although compliant, she usually declines and wants to return to her room. Should we be trying to coax her to do more things that she doesn't want to do? So this is a yeah. really good uh, question that ties in with uh, the discussion of apathy, I mm -hmm. would say. Um, yeah. yeah. What are I, your thoughts on this? I, I think so. Um, you know, the first the first question we always ask when we don't have all the information is this is this apathy or is this related to depression or anxiety? And so those are the things that um, the these are the types of situations where I'd want a bit more information mm -hmm. first and saying, you know, is she having more sad thoughts? Is she feeling down? She's lost interest in activities that bring her pleasure. She can't concentrate as much. Um, she's feeling excessively guilty or especially um, thinking about death more frequently, actively expressing thoughts of um, committing suicide or uh, other non-specific symptoms like experiencing pain. We talked a lot about these things in our uh, our last yeah, our last live, live event. event. Yeah. And so if, if that's not there and there's no medical illness there and the dementia is, you know, progressing, then we'd say that's that's apathy. That's the lack of um, desire to get up and, and perform goal directed activities. So if say, she's if she's yeah. not that distressed by it, if the yeah. distress is mostly from the family and the staff, yeah. then if it is more apathy than yeah. depression and anxiety, then it's okay not to coax her. I think yeah. the idea is if you can engage her in activities that she enjoys, great. But if she is wanting to opt out and mm -hmm. doesn't appear to be depressed, then it's okay to let her not do things. Um, yep. So, yeah, I guess there, there's no one right approach, but it isn't necessarily the case if she has this apathy that she's necessarily sad and uh, it Absolutely. may be fine just yeah. to kind of leave her alone. Mm -hmm. So um, here's another question that came in. Can a change in behavior occur without notice? Like very suddenly, uh, the person says almost like a split personality. Uh, one minute they're one way and all of a sudden they're another. That's not very common. And we talked about um, if anything changes quickly in a dementia, then you have to go back to the drawing board and consider whether or not this is related to a, an acute or short-term confusional event called delirium. It can be associated with uh, medical problems, um, pain, dehydration, constipation, urinary retention where the person can't empty their bladder. There's a lot of other causes that we wouldn't get yeah. into. But certainly um, in the absence yeah. of any kind of uh, obvious trigger, like right. a change in the environment yeah. or a particular person or it would you know, be much like, less common. It and, would be less yeah. common. And, um, you know, if the person isn't that communicative because they've lost some of their language, then you would worry about something like a, an extreme type of migraine headache or a headache right. or something like that. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. 
So uh, here's a different comment. Um, my loved one seems to be able to turn it on, uh, appears more lucid when uh, they go for a doctor's visit, but mm -hmm. then is confused after we leave the appointment. And that's, uh, I mean, that's really interesting because I don't see the people when they go home for their appointment, but I, I will say that um, f doing uh, some research protocols, I actually had the chance to go back and observe people that have uh, dementia multiple times in the same day. And it was interesting to see the fluctuations in their cognitive abilities <laughs> within the same day, because often we'll only see them once as a, a caregiver. So um, cognitive abilities can fluctuate naturally. I think that's the, the benefit of standardized tests that really stress the brain. So a good one, if there's just some mild cognitive changes, is the Montreal uh, Cognitive Assessment. And that's where you can't really hide things or turn it on. The types of questions that are asked are stress your brain enough that if there are problems and you are having uh, confusion, it should be able to show us uh, where you're having problems. Um, so one is there are natural fluctuations in cognition that occur uh, with people that have dementia. In particular, people that have dementia with Lewy bodies fluctuate a lot. Um, there are normal fluctuations with people uh, that have um, dementia, but then also um, we can get around that if you're concerned that they're not presenting their true cognitive abilities to their doctor by doing these objective cognitive tests. I think it's a it's uh, highlights as well. You know, mostly when we're in the clinic, uh, you know, we're we're seeing just a small snapshot mm -hmm. of somebody, uh, and uh, it highlights the incredibly valuable uh, perspective of the caregiver that is spending the other twenty three and a half Absolutely, hours. Yeah. So, uh, you know, this is it's great if if the loved one is allowing you to attend the doctor's visits because it would be really important for you to offer your perspective on some of the day to day functional and cognitive challenges. So uh, that is why getting what we call collateral history from care partners is so important because you only get a little snapshot in the office. Um, so And you're allowed to, um, to discuss those things if you have concerns as well. And um, you know, we don't do any assessments in cognition without asking uh, collateral from the caregivers. So yeah. it's a very important part. Kind of need everything together. Um, what the person with dementia is saying, what the caregivers are saying for collateral history and objective uh, cognitive tests to put it all together and figure out what's taking place. I think the, the other thing is that the context sometimes around a doctor's visit or a specific activity is familiar mm -hmm. to the person. Yeah. So, you know, unless the uh, doctor is asking other types of questions or doing um, more detailed testing, people have a kind of a sense of this is what this I'm expected to say or do yeah. in this. Uh, so. Or having a charming personality. Some people just have charming personalities and those will outshine any of the cognitive problems. They can cover problems up, cover up some of the weaknesses. Exactly. With, uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, here's a question. My mom does not like supper time and uh, the person thinks it's associated with when they have to leave. Uh, would it be better to not say goodbye and uh, just sneak out. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking this is somebody whose uh, loved one mm -hmm. uh, is in long-term care and has yes. like a, a meal. So what would you, what would you suggest there? I think um, there's no 
great answer and a lot of the responsive behaviors as well. It's great that you've limited this down to uh, being associated with dinner time and um, you leaving. And then it's a question of, I think, experimenting and seeing what happens. So if they have really bad short-term memory problems, then they might not actually remember the fact that you left. In which case, if you leave and you avoid causing them distress or being upset, then I think that's completely reasonable. And there's no easy answer for these responsive behaviors or emotional patterns. So I would, I would try one thing. And if you feel okay with that and it's not causing distress or it's minimizing the distress that the person experiences, then it's completely reasonable to, to try that and see what happens. And then ask the staff afterwards what happened. Yeah. And then if you do that all the time and it reduces her distress, then I think it's a completely reasonable course of action. I think, I think this is a relatively uh, frequent scenario mm -hmm. too. And, um, you know, I, I think trying to... Uh, get to know the routine at the facility mm -hmm. and and figure out the meal times. Often what is suggested here is, um, you know, don't completely sneak out without saying goodbye. Prime the staff that you're going to leave mm -hmm. when they sit down for the meal. Once they're sit sitting down and they have sort of the diversion and distraction of the meal, then you might even just sort of whisper in their ear, um, you know, I'll see you later. Sure. And something like yeah. that. So again, yeah. you sort of you you use the advantage of there being um, some distraction and uh, try to minimize it, and also highlight that you know mm -hmm. you'll you'll be back again. So, um, but uh, yeah, there's no one right right way to do it. Um, okay, we've got a, a one or two other questions. Um, this is a person who's a volunteer at a long-term care facility uh, and and also at a hospital. Uh, they do a lot of talking with residents who are having difficulty coping and, and have exhibited behaviors. Uh, the hospital, I guess, has some form of counseling, but not, not the nursing home. Uh, they're wondering about any recommended readings or resources. Um, any, any, I, I can suggest there's a, the Alzheimer's Society has mm -hmm. a, a guide called uh, Shifting Focus, uh, which is a good recommendation, uh, not just for somebody working in long-term care, but for for uh, care partners generally. And mm -hmm. it actually kind of covers some of the things that we've talked about today. Uh, we do have uh, our, our lesson eight refers to the apathy. So it would be appropriate for the one person mm -hmm. uh, and the resources associated with that. And then lesson nine is the one where we talk about more of the responsive behaviors. And we have a few resources there, including the link to the Alzheimer's uh, shifting focus. Any other resources or, or readings that you would recommend? Uh, I, we, I think you've covered it. Okay. I think those are great resources. And then just um, if you're looking for the care team in the facility to be better educated would be the gentle persuasive approaches yeah. side of things. So, And actually one other um, really uh, good resource that we just came across was uh, out of uh, Mount Sinai in Toronto is uh, an app called Dementia Advisor, and it has uh, a series of uh, scenarios mm -hmm. that uh, give very helpful, very real-world, realistic scenarios right, uh, yeah. with some of the same suggestions that we've talked about today, things that uh, might be helpful in terms of uh, those kinds of approaches. I think, too, um, checking out the Center for Aging and Brain Health Innovations website to see all of the different um, 
new technologies that are coming out as well and educational uh, applications. There's a lot of great things that uh, it's been interesting to see the explosion of uh, interventions for dementia caregivers. Mm. So there's lots of new technology that's coming out uh, quite frequently and educational apps and educational platforms. So, And uh, I guess it's interesting, we're at the 42-minute mark of a 45-minute one, mm -hmm. and we have not talked about medications right. for responsive behaviors. Mm -hmm. uh, and honestly, in part, uh, it's because really medications are typically a last resort. And mm -hmm. um, But uh, do you want to say, in a brief period of time, say anything about the role of, of medicines? And sure. Um, you know, I think exactly as you're saying, it's a last resort, but it is commonly required. And we don't usually use them unless the person's at harm to themselves or harm to the people around them or the degree of distress that the behaviors are causing are unmanageable uh, on the part of the caregiver and the person with dementia. So if you have complete sleep-wake uh, reversal and nobody in the house is able to sleep mm. for weeks on end, that's not a tenable situation. Um, the same thing if people are striking out and being very aggressive, we've gone through all our procedures. We understand that there's no specific antecedent uh, set of factors that are starting it. They don't have a medical illness. There's nothing else that we can treat like pain or dehydration. So we've gone through our whole process and what we're stuck with is something that's a very severe behavior, then we'll intervene. Commonly, the medications we'd use to intervene uh, are antipsychotics. So risperidone, Haldol, quetiapine are, are common ones. We won't go... In I'm, feel I'm feeling that maybe a future live event is, right. is talking about the different uh, totally. medicines. But I, I guess one of the bottom lines is really the, the scientific evidence, mm -hmm. the data behind the effectiveness of medicines mm -hmm. for the management of agitation and challenging behaviors in dementia, it's, there's not great science behind it and there's right. uh, side effects. So we, I, I think we would encourage you to go through lesson nine, which does talk about the different classes of medicines and, uh, and then maybe a, maybe a future live event on the topic. I think so. Um, you know, one, one thing just to mention um, is that they, they do work very well for certain people. And sometimes the science is lacking because of the way we measure right. the outcomes. And so, you know, if we measure all of the BPSD and we don't focus in on specific behaviors with specific medications, we run into problems. So um, there are side effects associated with them and adverse events, but for some people they're absolutely necessary. And for some households and some caregivers, they're life-saving. Yeah. Okay, so uh, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, any questions that we didn't get to, we'll try to answer uh, on our Facebook page. Really, please take a moment to fill out the brief survey. It's super short, wafer thin, and uh, we're really looking for more input into uh, other topics for live events and anything else, uh, other suggestions you have to improve the experience. Uh, a couple reminders, our next live event will be on Wednesday, December 12th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. In the next period of time, we will put a copy of this video on the website, which you can access at igericare.ca slash events. I would really encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter, which will also uh, keep you aware 
of uh, when new live events are coming, uh, but use the survey to tell us what you'd like to hear more of in future live events. Uh, at this point, I would also like to thank our sponsors. Uh, fundings provided by the uh, Canadian Center for Aging and Brain Health Innovation, which is powered out of Baycrest. Uh, the Jarris Center here at Hamilton Health Sciences, McMaster University, and the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation, and the Alzheimer's Society of Hamilton Halton. Um, I would be remiss if I did not remember to say teamwork makes the dream work. So I want to thank Stephanie, Jamie, Mike, and our whole team at the Division of E-Learning Innovation for helping put together these live broadcasts. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again December 12th. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to our website so you don't miss a thing. And if you didn't enjoy the episode, let us know how we can improve. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.